From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News, and this is your host, Kate Moody. We've just finished recording our new show. We're bringing you some of the biggest stories of the week, including an embedded finance doubleheader as Mumsnet teams up with Chetwood to launch family-focused financial products in 2023, and HSBC teams up with Oracle NetSuite for embedded banking services in the US. Two really interesting, but quite different, um, embedded finance use cases here, like interesting partnerships, um, different groups coming together to solve quite particular pain points for customers. So really interesting to, to dig into this in more detail with um, some of the people that are actually helping to bring these these services out into the real world. And also on a partnerships theme, we have Adyen deepening its partnerships with Tink by adding open banking payments. Again, we've got somebody from Tink to talk us through this and understand the impact that they're looking to have and the types of change that this will drive in the market. And finally, we look at the SEC charging Kim Kardashian for Instagram crypto promotion. Not such a great partnership here. We dive into the roles and responsibilities of celebrities when it comes to talking about crypto uh, and ask our guests if there are any celebrities that they would trust with their financial situations. We get into all this and much more. But first, a few brief messages. Don't go anywhere. Does your product or service work for everybody? Are you unconsciously alienating some of your audience? Packed with all the handy tips and actual insight, our brand new inclusive design report has all of the information you need to embed a truly representative mindset in your organization. Head to 11fs.com forward slash inclusive dash design and download it today. These days, every new potential hire can feel like a high stakes wager for your small business. You want to be 100% certain that you have access to the best qualified candidates available. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. Just add your job and the purple hiring frame to your LinkedIn profile to spread the word that you're hiring. Then use simple tools like screening questions to quickly prioritise who you'd like to interview and hire. It's why small businesses rate LinkedIn Jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the qualified candidates you want to talk to faster. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash fintech. That's linkedin.com slash fintech to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to episode 670 of Fintech Insider. I'm Kate Moody and I'm joined by some very special guests. Making a welcome return to the show, we have Nadia Hijazi, Global Head of Wholesale Digital Channels at HSBC. Nadia, how are you? Great. Thank you very much for, for coming back. Looking forward to hearing your perspective. Making another very welcome return, we have Julia McColl, CPO at Chetwood Financial. How are you, Julia? Very well, thank you. Thanks very for well. joining us in the studio and completing our studio lineup. Everyone's in person today. It's very exciting. We have a FinTech Insider debut for Tom Pope, who is Head of Payments and Platforms at Tink. Welcome to FinTech Insider, Tom. How are you? Yeah, good. Thank you very much. Excited to be here. Thanks very much for joining us. We've got a, a big week for, for all of you guys. All of you guys have been very, very busy indeed. So we've got lots to discuss. I'm really looking forward to hearing your take on things. So let's get into the news. First up from Finextra, we have Mums Bank. That's Mumsnet teaming up with Chetwood to launch family-focused financial products in 2023. Parenting giant Mumsnet is planning to launch its own suite of financial services in 2023 with the help of UK banking provider Chetwood Financial. Mumsnet, the popular parenting website, says it will be introducing a new family-focused financial services proposition that will solve some of the financial dilemmas that parents, particularly mothers, face in the current economic landscape. Chetwood, with its banking licence and the recent acquisition of core banking provider Yobota, will supply the technology and the infrastructure that Mumsnet needs. 
Other customers currently using Chetwood's technology include B2B Buy Now Pay Later Tranche and Rental Lender Fronted, who both use the Ubota core banking platform. Julia, surprise, surprise, going to come to you first on this one. <laughs> Genuinely, like lots of excitement in the 11FS office at this announcement this week. So first of all, it sounds a bit like a sort of dating story, but you know, who approached who? How did this get started? <laughs> I do think that's a good first question. Um, I also like the Mums Bank brand. We're uh, currently testing brands. So yeah, that's not on our list. <laughs> but we'll let you know where we get to. Um, so it was an introduction actually through a third party that we know. So um, a guy called Freed who used to work at Accenture, but as part of their kind of fintech development team. And really, he knows the business, he understands what they're looking to do. And he knows how crazy they are about community and customer. He also knew us and knew that we were really aligned in terms of values. So he effectively put us in touch and through a series of workshops, we focused on really understanding the target customer, really getting to know who their community is, what they need. And as always, we co-created the product from there. Amazing. Um, and you know, what can you tell, obviously I appreciate it's early stages, but you know, what can you tell us about the types of products that you're going to be creating together? Yeah, so definitely flexible. I think as you would expect, you know, we've talked to, to hundreds of of parents, but mostly mums. The uh, Mumsnet user group is 95% uh, female, so it makes sense to kind of start there. Um, and as you'd expect, yeah, things change so much in families, and we're really conscious about trying to create products that are super flexible. So thinking about, you know, as children age, how the needs of a family d differ, how adding a, an extra child to the family um, also changes the needs, um, and really thinking about how we create products that are innovative and different and respond to those changes in the way that traditional banking products just don't do today. Interesting. Um, and this partnership announcement comes following a panel that you guys and Mumsnet did at the Labour Party conference that was sort of talking about the childcare crisis. You know, can you tell us a bit more about how you got involved in that and how financial services you think is, is going to help with that childcare crisis? Yeah, it's a really interesting area. So we've done we've done lots of research um, and I honestly learned so much through this process. I think women are effectively the biggest underserved segment in financial services when you start to actually look at the stats. Um, and obviously with childcare, one of the really interesting things is, particularly at the moment with cost of living, we know that the majority of people are spending more on childcare than they do on their rent and mortgage. So it's it's a really fascinating topic. Um, it's something that Justine, as the CEO of Mumsnet, is very passionate about, as are we. And there's something like £2.4 billion of underspent childcare benefit. So not only are we not really providing enough childcare support, where we are providing it, people aren't aware that it's there and people aren't using it. So there's some really tactical, simple things that, that need to change to help to help mums and parents generally uh, to, to be able to support childcare. And we know from our research and also from Mumsnet user groups, this is actually changing how people make life decisions. People aren't going back to work because the cost of childcare is just prohibitive. And we've spoken to so many people who've said it actually either costs them to go back to work or it basically makes no difference. And that puts women in particular in a really difficult position in terms of that decision. So one of the things we talked about really early on with Mumsnet was this view that everybody that wants to be able to go back to work should be able to. And how would we, you know, how could we collectively work together to really make that make that happen? And one of the obvious areas is to think about, you know, how you provision childcare. As a financial services company, we spent a lot of time looking at, you know, can you create a lending product here? Is there something you can do that actually helps parents spread the cost of that childcare? You know, as we do with things like student loans. 
And the challenge really is it's very hard to make that work because the cost is so high. I mean, most people spend for a full-time childcare, it's about £1,000 a month average in the UK. Um, And that obviously over a period of years with multiple children starts to become a really large loan amount. So it's really hard to make that work as a financial services business. So what we've tried to do is actually then campaign and and with Justine's great relationships in in, in her network, um, campaign the government parties around what we think needs to change. Um, and it's not to simplify the issue. There's, you know, there was a really great panel discussion and there's so many different elements to it. Um, supply is obviously an area of, of concern. So, you know, we do need to balance, I guess, if we can create more demand by allowing more parents to be able to afford childcare, making sure there's also supply. So, yes, yeah, it's, it's a big issue. We could probably talk about it for the whole, <laughs> the whole episode. We definitely could, yeah. As someone who's very recently, you know, I've got a, a 14-month-old, so someone who's very recently gone through a lot of those kind of thought processes that you described, yeah, <laughs> definitely going to open up the panel because, um, you know, my husband and I were joking that we should just rent my son like a sort of one-bed studio apartment in central London because yeah. it would probably be cheaper yeah. and you know we'll just let him fend for himself and see if it works out um, sadly yeah. he works in child protection policy in the civil service so I don't think that would end well career-wise but you know it is like, yeah. cost is at that scale yeah. it's, it's huge so I mean Tom what, what, what was your take on this yeah I mean, first of all it's an awesome product <laughs> I think I can see I can see why they want to do it I mean we I we see a different end of this which is you, know, you mentioned lending and kind of how do you make lending fairer we've seen a similar set of asks come into us right which is how can people start to use open banking data to make lending decisions more accurate and more fair like a lot of lending decisions are still made in a pretty kind of poor way I think right there's a lot of clunky manual processes going on the scenes uh, which can be quite discriminatory and actually when you can open up someone's financial history to a lender with their permission that often does result in yeah much more accurate and timely decisions so it's a big area for us and you know cost of living is also you know it's a, it's a problem for everybody um, it's uh, something where we have partners like Snoop who have you know seen actually that platforms like theirs where you can categorize your spend and you can break down your transaction history that you know is a very relevant product to people right now who who do need to try and find ways to you know eke out you know eke out money every month so yeah there's cool product though love it yeah and it's interesting <laughs> you say about the decisioning part so one of the things we've been thinking about is you know, actually, effectively, the way that most lenders do income verification and affordability, you're, you're looking for periods of absence and you treat that period of absence, whether it's unemployment or bringing a child up, you don't differentiate because you yeah. can't, right? Because yeah. you don't know in the data what's going on behind it. So actually, as you say, starting to get into open banking, getting better data, starting to even just ask in, as part of the application process, whether people have been on parental leave or whether actually they've been out of work, you know, starting to differentiate some of those things, I think is really interesting because otherwise you are you are effectively less likely to get access to credit. And if you do, you're going to pay more for it. And that's, you know, that's as a result of bringing children up, which doesn't feel fair, as you said. And it sounds like you have a great partner as well, right? Like when you get these kind of customers who come to you with a very clear problem and they totally understand their user base. Yeah. It's yeah, it's kind of fun. I'm, I'm semi-jealous. Yeah, yeah no, and they are fantastic. Yeah, the mum's set, I think it's been, the mum's set team have just been fantastic to work with. Um, and as you say, they, they know their customers, you know, their whole site really is about understanding their customers' needs. And, you know, they've got so many live polls and community discussions. And so it's been great to use that community to get access to, to insights as well as our own kind of primary customer research as well. Nadia, what was your your take on this? Yeah, I think it's it's such it's first of all I agree it's a great it's a great product and I think 
when I, when I reflected on what you're doing, you look at all these developments since the last financial crisis. It's almost like all of the components there now are there to enable this kind of helping um, these kind of communities, right? Open banking in the last 10 years, the regulation around it, the movement of data, the spend analysis, kind of none of that existed. It's it's kind of like we've come into a similar financial crisis, but this time we're we're almost much better prepared. And there's also that social responsibility that came out of the last financial crisis, right? The banks, the financial companies all realize that they have to be properly part of a community and being properly part of a community means that you help to solve these problems as well. And how are you going to help solve these problems? It's through this kind of the open banking APIs for the data, the payment, but also these 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 come and nearly every application now has a way of analyzing what you've spent nearly every single person's offering credit score analysis and it's almost like there's an opportunity now to kind of take it to the next level mm. to help people because the previous one was the banks are collapsing this one was this is households this is people and it shifted where we need to kind of provide the help and the focus uh, in terms of financial services and be really attuned to how we can maximize this. And I, I imagine that we're going to see some real creativity around how we adapt those those tools. Yeah, and I think one of the things we've been thinking about and testing a lot is I think there's going to be loads of really, as you say, really interesting, innovative things we can do in the back end. But actually, they're probably not going to come through very much in the front end proposition because when we've tested it with customers, they don't know the problems exist and so they kind of aren't bothered about them. So even when we've tested and said, you know, actually the example I just used about time off work or, you know, the fact that most women have a lower credit score than men. Like, people actually, it's not resonating with with mums in particular um, and parents more broadly. So what we're probably going to do is think about those customer-led features and flexibility control, you know, creating great savings products for children, better credit products, thinking about reward bundles and things that really help with cost of living and budgeting and wrapping loads of educational support around it. But we probably won't really major on all of the stuff in the background. I mean, obviously, we'll talk about it in the industry, but it, it isn't necessarily going to be at the forefront of the proposition for customers. So there's been a really interesting piece where, as you say, and I think there's loads there to do, um, but actually that isn't the bit that will make us stand out for, from a customer lens either. Yeah, it's really refreshing to hear that because you know, sometimes you hear in the industry people yeah, they get very excited, understandably, about the technical progress we've made and it's just about like, we've got this great technology, how do we get it into the hands of customers? And as you say, like, if you're not actually connecting to that real-world problem, um, then then you're not going to be able to kind of get that traction, overcome that you know, inertia that we see in the market. And that for me was kind of why I thought this was so exciting because when we're designing new propositions, you, you're always confronted by this inertia that exists in financial services. You've really got to find something like a, a a real pain point to solve or a real moment of life change to kind of help go on a journey with with a customer. And like, surprise, surprise, having a baby is both a creator of lots of pain points and also quite a significant life event. So to me, it felt like that kind of perfect you know, correlation between between the two. And as you say, there's a community element. So you've got that kind of ready group of potential hopeful first customers. Um, and also, so it's my, my personal experience, you know, I've, I've not used Mumsnet, but I do have a, a sort of a, a WhatsApp community of, of mums and the the openness and the conversations that we have I think are totally different to any of my other groups of friends so we know that talking about financial services can be quite you know uncomfortable for people but I've had really really frank conversations with you know my, my female mum friends about you know, the financial challenges that we're having you know the as you say the trade-offs that we're making so to me it, it seems like a really really potentially 
potent combination of different factors. So I'm really I, th- I think that female literacy is really important when it comes to financial services. And it's almost like it's kind of one of the last frontiers that, that we, we have to break. And I agree with you. There is a, there's a natural resistance to push back from the topic because everyone's really uncomfortable with the topic. And it's almost like you kind of have to tip your toe into the topic to really sort of start to build build that up and realize what it means and it kind of gives you that that total independence and uh, we did a, a project a couple of years ago um, with um, Unilever in India and what they wanted to do was they wanted to give women the ability to earn their own money which is very important out there and to be independent from the husband and that and it was part of um, what, what when you work in India as an organization the government there requires you to contribute to the community with a project and this was the sort of the project that they chose it was called Shakti Woman and it was really about recognizing that if you don't give them a way to earn an income and you don't sort of empower them to do that, they won't find their way forward for their families and the other. So it's sort of a similar type of thing of how do you build something around a community and how do you address a need and allowed them to be self-supporting. One of the big things they did there was the money didn't go into the husband, the money went to the woman. Um, and it was something that they worked with the financial services companies to make sure that it went to the right person because it was all about empowering her and giving her that sort of independence. I think that's really where you can use financial services and the propositions around it as a, as a power for good and for change. Definitely. And one of the things we've been thinking about is, you know, for products that we don't offer today, so like pensions and investments in particular, where we know that actually women do tend to be behind in terms of both investing enough money in their pension and also using other forms of investment. Generally, they're definitely areas that, that we still, you know, we still aren't equal on. Um, you know, how do we partner with ideally fintech-founded, female-led businesses to actually create those relationships where within that community and within this new brand that we create together with Mumsnet, we're actually able to almost just create a bigger partnership around and a bigger ecosystem around those kind of other rated companies, if you like, so that you can actually encourage the right behavior um, and not just make it about Chetwood level products that we have, because we actually do want to, as you say, try and really solve some of those underlying issues. Um, And I think that's the way that that we get there quicker, hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. Um, I would love to chat about this all day, but sadly, um, there's there's other news stories we've got to cover. So yeah, I mean, fingers crossed um, for the for the launch. This we'll definitely be keeping our eyes peeled and hoping it's as successful as it can be. Um, so now to our next story, also uh, a banking as a service story, this time with a slightly bigger bank uh, and the US market, and that is from Finextra, and that is that HSBC has teamed up with Oracle NetSuite for embedded banking services in the US. HSBC has integrated embedded banking services into NetSuite accounts payable automation, a cloud enterprise resource planning or ERP platform. The service will accelerate cash flow and accounts payable processes such as paying vendors and processing invoice for customers. Using NetSuite, users will be able to access payment discounts and cash flow regulation. Virtual HSBC credit card payments transacted through NetSuite will also allow users to earn credit and the service is now available in the US. Nadia, great to have you with us to get your your hands-on experience. So, what can you tell us about this one? Yeah, so we're really excited about this. So, 
obviously working with many of our business banking customers um, in this space, what we realized was you had these two two polar opposites. You had the accounting software providers, you had the banks, and the customer was essentially navigating across both of them. And while open banking helped in terms of moving data from one place to the other, or you did a pay by bank to integrate in, it wasn't an integrated journey. And the customer's still managing across two platforms and, and quite difficult for them. And particularly the smaller the company, the less likely they are to have a CFO or a team managing that for them. And in the current situation with sort of the pace of change that they're having to put up with, the cost of living crisis and everything that's going on, it was how do we come up with some a proposition that's totally customer-centric? So it's not I'm the accounting software provider, I'm the bank, but it's a totally blended experience which puts the what the customer's trying to do at the heart of it, what the business is trying to do. And what they're trying to do is one of the key activities manage their accounts, accounts payable. Anybody that's done that will know it's all about pieces of paper and trying to match them together and then frantically sort of doing a payment either th- through a platform or another. So what this looks to do is, you know, NetSuite have created an amazing customer experience where... Uh, the customer can go in, um, they can scan in their their billing or invoice information directly into NetSuite. That information then gets enhanced with the data that they have. It goes into their accounts payable team. The accounts payable team then it will match it with the purchase order for them, all done in a really automated way using AI and machine learning. And then they have a number of options in which they can do the payment using uh, the account that's integrated in directly into the platform. So when they go into the service, they can open up an HSBC account and they can go through credit process, they get a virtual account, and then they're able to uh, use those payments to to pay their bills either through an, an ACH payment, a check, or through their credit card if they want to use it for working capital purposes. Uh, and, and it's a totally integrated journey. There's no going out into another platform or doing anything. It's, it's completely uh, embedded and, and seamless for them. Starting initially with kind of domestic payments, because that's what they initially told us. But since the launch, everyone's like, great, we love it. Can we now do international payments? You know what it's like? It's like a... Um, a rolling ball. It was a great experience, you know, actually working with a partner like that, so much goes into it. Um, it's similar to the MomsNet thing. You, uh, there's, there's sort of a meeting of the cultures as well because you have sort of a company um, that's really focused on one area, another that's focused on another, and you have to bring the cultures together to make this a, a success. Uh, and that was probably the most interesting part of the whole activity. As you say, it's less about the technology at that point. It's more about the experience you're trying to create and how you bring that together so it's frictionless and seamless for the customer. Absolutely. Lots of interesting partnerships to, to chat through in this show. I mean, obviously you touched on, you know, you're going to move, you start off domestic, you're going to move international. I suppose my, my next question was going to be, where do you go next? You know, what is it you're particularly looking to see as key measures of success that help you determine how you evolve this project going forward? Yeah, so so at the moment, we're just sort of doubling down on what we've done in the US. Uh, we want to maximize. We really believe in focusing on that and working with the customers because it's like anything when you first go live. We want to get more of the feedback. We've done a lot of the voice of the customer before, but now once you're, once you're live doing that. And then next, um, they're looking at uh, a new project in India, also doing something similar, but on the trade side, 
to to kind of bring that to life. So really focused US and then focusing on India. Okay. And and what prompted you US as as the first market? What was it that, that made you guys choose to go there? It was kind of where we sort of met that partner that had the same sort of vision as we did. It, it was really about that. It was almost like, you know, a, a, a meeting together of of ideas. Um, that that really was 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 the impetus for it. There's lots of places we can go with this. I have to say, we're not short of ideas in this place. I think everyone is keen to kind of break this final frontier of making it much more of an integrated experience. Absolutely. Um, I'm sure you'll be busy for a long time to come. Um, Tom, what what was your take on this one when you saw this news? Um, yeah, I mean, it's not an area I'm an expert in, but I was I was actually just kind of intrigued and interested by this concept that you guys are starting to open up your platform more. Like, are you is HSBC becoming more of a banking as are you sort of taking banking as a service more seriously? Are you starting to kind of build API layers for other partners, or is this a kind of a a one off for you? No, we have a lot of API customers already, mm. um, much more in the sort of embedded finance uh, space. So we already have hundreds of millions of transactions that come in through through APIs, mm. through our API channel. Mm. Uh, and we started that about three years ago because it, there was a huge opening in the market, particularly when you bring together that kind of real-time payment space and that sort of instant, you know, some great examples of that is um, in Singapore and Hong Kong, they have a real-time direct debit. So a lot of the investment companies we're working with are like, hey, we don't want the customer to go somewhere, make a bank transfer, bring it in. Can you do an instant direct debit for us? Mm. So we've been using a lot of those. We've seen huge growth. But similarly, um, we work a lot with a lot of marketplaces that when they customers are buying things, similar to the proposition you've done, mm. they want to pay through a, a, a payment and they want the refund through payment too. So if you go uh, here, when you do a refund, you go to a store or they refund it. And in some places in the world, when they deliver the package, they pick up something you want to return, they scan in the barcode, and then they want to credit the account immediately. So we've got a lot of APIs that do that right. um, as well, as well as um, account aggregation ones. So it's, it's, mm. it's a huge space for us that we've already seen significant process. But the, uh, the difference with this one is those tend to be verticalized in terms of its account information, its payments, its buy now, pay later. Whereas this is a true end-to-end experience. It's yeah. open an account, apply for a credit card, you know, use ACH payments, get your statements. Even your billing information is integrated directly into it. So it's a full suite a solution um, and definitely yes we do uh, we're very committed to platforms and I'm sure our head of platforms would be happy to come and join <laughs> another another podcast session to talk about it absolutely I've made a note of that already um, <laughs> Julia obviously you guys are key players in the banking as a service space as well what's what's your reaction to HSBC taking banking as a service seriously <laughs> I, I think it's great I think you know I don't I don't really see us as competitors I think I think we're in very different parts of the market so you know, for us, for us, banking as a service is about being able to offer that kind of end-to-end, you know, full proposition development as we're doing with Mumsnet, as we've talked about. It's balance sheet, it's, you know, the credit decisioning, the pricing, all of that risk. And I, I just don't think that any of the big banks that go into banking as a service are going to be playing in the same space as us on that. Mm. I think what we're talking about is the big banks integrating and using other technology to to offer their end customers much better end-to-end experiences, which I'm all for. And I think particularly, you know, SME market has been 
it has been a market that's been overlooked, I think, by the big high street banks for many years in terms of digital functionality. It lags behind retail a lot. And and so this is such a great example of actually really starting to shift that and, and give them a capability that they're obviously crying out for. So I'm not, I don't know whether I agree with that. I think we're offering pretty much the same that you're talking about. I think from a business banking perspective, we have our kinetic proposition, which is a mobile first. Yeah. You can open an account within 15 minutes, you know, maximum 48 hours for more than 85% of the customers. It does full spend analysis. You can get your credit card online. You can get a loan decision within minutes. It's a full banking service. And we have a large customer base that has applied for it and is using it. So I hear you, but I'm not really sure whether I would agree with that. And to be honest, I think there's enough space for everyone in this space. I I think everyone is sort of you know, trying to solve, I think, different problems, um, but with the same kind of good intention of what we're all trying to do is really create that great customer experience and make demystify financial services and make it something that's so seamless to use. It's almost like using your iPhone. You don't think that there's a financial service behind it because you've built an experience that makes it easy for you to use. And I think you've done something great in what you've done, Tom. Definitely. definitely, Yeah, I mean, there's definitely just a clear trend generally, right, which is all the silos are breaking down and everyone is putting little API hooks on the end of their silos and hooking into different silos and off the back of that some kind of cool products are emerging so yeah it's fun fingers crossed hopefully at the end of it it's the customer who, who wins ultimately exactly. from having this well, we all space. lose if it isn't so. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah I, mean, I thought it was particularly interesting you um, Nadia what you were saying about you know, these typical customers being organisations maybe that don't yet have a CFO you know from from projects that I've been involved in the research that I've done it's that feels like such a tricky point for businesses yeah. when they've reached a stage of of growth when they're scaling they've got you know, people on their on their um you know, on their books to, to support you know employees that they want to look exactly. after but they can't quite justify that that expense I don't believe that they can understand what that CFA would do I think that's again you I think lots of people get very excited about micro businesses and SMEs and and that kind of mid growth business can quite often get get left one side so exactly. yeah hopefully um excited to see what you guys can do to, to help those types of customers so so fingers crossed again would love to chat about this all day but i'm gonna <laughs> i'm gonna move us on um because we've got plenty more to cover um we're just going to take actually a quick pause here we'll be back shortly the rise of data-driven financial services has opened up new ways for banks and lenders to better connect with their customers and offer exceptional user experiences But to take advantage of these opportunities, we need to break away from traditional constraints. A new report from Tink shows how open banking can pave the way for faster and more responsible lending practices that are robust on risk and financially inclusive. To find out how Tink can help you transform lending, read the full report at tink.com forward slash 11FS. Welcome back. Our next story is from AltFi, and that is that Adyen has deepened its partnership with Tink by adding open banking payments. Adyen, the global financial technology platform for business, and open banking platform Tink have entered into a partnership for open banking-powered payments. The deal sees Tink's technology embedded into Adyen's single platform, enabling Adyen customers to seamlessly offer next-generation open banking payments to consumers. Adyen will utilise Tink's payment initiation technology to enable businesses to access account-to-account payments. Adyen's open banking integration will launch first in the UK, with plans to expand to multiple markets in 2023. 
Open Banking Payments builds upon the partnership Adyen and Tink already have for account check technology that lets Adyen's customers instantly verify account ownership to streamline payouts. By using real-time data straight from individual or business bank accounts, this enables Adyen's customers to automate payout setup, reducing operational overheads and payment errors. Tom, surprise, surprise, going <laughs> to come to you first. Going to come to you first on this one. Again, uh, how did this story start? How did this partnership come about? Yeah, I mean... I mean, first of all, obviously, we are super excited about it. Uh, as a as a payments geek, I've long admired Adyen. I'm sure <laughs> anyone who touches payments has admired what those guys have been doing for the last 10, 15 years. Um, no, we've been we've been partners with Adyen for a while uh, on the account check side. Uh, so that's an onboarding product, an account verification product, as you say. Um, that's something at the moment that we offer to Adyen for the onboarding of their customers, but now also Adyen for the onboarding of their customers' customers. So Adyen has got a big platform strategy. They work with a lot of marketplaces. So um, that's a good one for us. Um, but no, super exciting, to be honest, for I think all of open banking that Adyen is now taking open banking payments seriously again. Uh, they were one of the first movers in this space about a current bet, like four years ago, I think. Um, and you know, I think it's fair to say that probably wasn't the, the wasn't a resounding success. I think they were probably a bit too far ahead of the game. Um, but they've come back to the table in a really serious way, uh, and they've got very ambitious plans for this. So, yeah, for everyone at Tink, it's uh, it's a very exciting time, and we're working very hard with Adyen on uh, getting all this live, and we've got some exciting pilot customers launching soon. Excellent news. I mean, how obviously you've touched on it already a little bit, but you know, how impactful will this be, do you think, you know, firstly for Adyen and the business that they're supporting, but even for you guys directly at Tink, like, what is the impact of this going to be, do you think? I mean, <laughs> I'm biased. I'm going to say totally transformational. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think Adyen obviously is a, it's, it's a, it's a total, total leader in all things payments. And everything they do, they do very, very well, right? So when Adyen brings a payments product to the market, their customers know that product is of high quality and is going to work. And, I'm always kind of, well, I'm no longer as surprised, but I'm always surprised at how many customers we talk to directly who will always talk incredibly positively about the experience they have working with Adyen. Um, so for us, we, we hold ourselves, of course, to a high bar of product quality. Uh, we've had to pass some pretty stringent tests to, to kind of get to work with Adyen to offer the product through Adyen. Um, but I think for the Adyen's customers, this opens up a way of paying which has quite a few advantages over lots of the incumbents. Um, open banking payments have virtually no fraud. They have no chargebacks. Uh, they are generally lower cost. Um, they settle in real time. Uh, there's, you know, other payment methods often offer some of those features, but very few, if any, offer all of them. So the interest, you know, I mean, Adyen won't be doing this if their merchants weren't interested. And uh, yeah, as I said, we've got some got some big names in the pipe to announce soon. So, it's cool. Oh, exciting. You're teasing us there. You sure <laughs> can't give us like a sneak preview? Or... Oh, it's worth more than my job, I'm afraid. Oh, sad times. <laughs> you have to invite me back in a few months. Okay, fingers crossed. <laughs> um, I mean, as, as you say, you know, I'm not as much of a payments geek, I'm sure, as you are, but you know, obviously we know Adyen very, very well. They've been around for a long time, but I suppose you know, they are almost like the OGs and in this space but now I guess the payment space has become a lot more competitive you know how how do you sort of see Adyen offering this as helping them to kind of 
compete more against the likes of Checkout.com, Molly, you know, all those all those other people that are creating a bit of noise as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important for a company like Allian to always be at the forefront of innovation for their customers. Right? It's a cliche, but it's true. Um, payments are still moving super fast. So if Adian kind of wants to stay relevant for their customers, and it's done a fantastic job in doing that, it needs to keep moving with the times. Uh, and I think that does mean doing things like you know, being quick and pioneering technology like this. They are, you know, I think the, they're probably the, of all the payments players, they're the one moving the fastest and the hardest on this, um, certainly to my knowledge, uh, which I guess is a good sign. Nadia, what, what did you think of this when you saw this news? I thought it was great. And um, we've had a pay-by-bank product, so totally, totally believe in the product and totally agree with Tom in terms of it also being a bit of a payment geek. I always get excited about uh, stories like this. That's how sad life is at the moment. But no, I, I really believe that this pay-by-bank proposition is going to become ubiquitous, you know, once it gets integrated in. So at the moment, at point of sale, you have the debit card, you have the credit card. But if you've got a pay-by-bank, why do you really need the, the debit card. I, I, I think that it makes it more seamless for the organization, really shows people moving on to digital. Personally, I think with the cost of living crisis, I'm not sure how people are going to afford their rents. If the interest rates, I think more people will move on to marketplaces. And as part of the marketplaces, I think what Tink is offering in our product as well becomes ideal because you want to offer those companies multiple options. It's good for the business because they don't have to pay big chargeback rates. So if your margins are small, it's really putting the business at the heart of it and saying, hey, we're going to reduce your costs. And I'm sure everyone's going to be excited about, about that. Um, and, you know, it, for the customer, it's a real-time thing. The money moves uh, quickly. And as Tom said, it's got low fraud. I, I'm sort of the one place that I, I think that we do need to do more thinking about is sort of the customer protection. I know the chargeback is a pain to organizations, but sort of in my head, I'm thinking, actually, this could fly off the shelf if you treated it a bit like a credit card where people got rewards for using it. Mm. You had a little bit of consumer protection and it almost then takes it to the next level. And then you think, why do I need the other sort of instruments unless I need working capital management for credit card? But it, almost it's the demise of the debit card and mm. moving into that. So, yeah, I, I think it's it's a super exciting uh, yeah. opportunity. And I agree with you completely, right? I mean, there are 8.5 billion payments taking place every month in the European Union. Right? It's over 100, 100 billion a year. Exactly. Um, not there's not going to be one payment product which meets the needs of all 100 billion annual payments um and you know even yeah. cards which we think of as ubiquitous in europe of about 50 percent market share of that right so i think for us what's exciting is there are lots of segments of payments for whom the card is maybe not mm. the right answer exactly. and some of the other apms are not the right answer if you look at the uk you've got 4.6 billion direct debits taking place so of that 100 billion 4.6 percent are direct debits in the uk alone yeah. Now, what we can do on open banking, especially once VRP comes, is I think a, a much superior product to direct debit um, for every player in the ecosystem. And you know, just taking that single market would be fantastic, right? We'd be very happy with that. Um, so yeah, no, I completely agree with you. And I think, you know, to be honest, part, being part of Visa for us now, I mean, we are a saving part of Visa. We are very, we're, we're very much an independent entity still, um, but. You know, Visa is very good at things like running mm -hmm. a dispute program. And so we're quite excited in the next few years to think, okay, how can we take pieces of Visa's technology like that, build them into our proposition so that we 
plug the gaps of open banking and create a proposition which works for everyone. Exactly. I was looking at some of the data around this. And at the moment, I think the largest use of pay by bank is actually the government website for people paying their taxes. So, yeah, the government's moved, we're, we're, moved quite... You're catching up, I'm sure, but uh, the government... <laughs> we actually do, yeah. We do more volume with one customer in Sweden than uh, all open banking in the UK at the moment put together, which yeah. is kind of crazy when you think about it. Exa- so exactly. there's a lot of, there's there's a lot lot of growth there. There's a lot yeah, of growth yeah, yeah. there. I believe that too. Julia, yeah. do you get as excited about payments as these two obviously do? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a payments it's okay geek. okay to say no. <laughs> I'm not a payments geek, but I'm a customer geek. And I think <laughs> the key for me here is there is a really strong use case, and I think that's what we've been missing on a lot of the things we've talked about for open banking for a long time and I think particularly the the B2B the merchant angle you know as we've talked about there's so many benefits Um, as a business it's a great product and we know the problems with direct debits and payments you know as a as a lender so you know there's there's loads of opportunity here I think the interesting thing I was just thinking about is that is that retail end consumer and how you know, it's always a bigger jump then, isn't it, to get retail customers yeah. into that space. We know there's still loads of negativity and confusion about what open banking is. Yep. I think we'll get there, but I still think there's a job to do there to to make that transition. But yeah, I think it's hugely, mm. hugely exciting and loads sure. of opportunities, we've said. Absolutely, right. And we see, I mean, to be clear, right, the, the growth in open banking for us, and I think everybody so far has been in the invoice space, in the top-up payment space, in spaces where actually no one no consumer is even aware they're using open exactly. banking, right? Like if you're loading your Revolut account or your Monzo account with open banking, at no point as a consumer do you think, ah, oh, today I'm exactly. using open banking. It just no, happens agree. and it works and it's a great experience. Yeah. And I think as we get into retail payments, you know, that yeah, there's definitely a, still a, a shift to overcome. But I think announcements like this Ali and One are really positive steps that we're starting to you know, get to the next frontier, which is... Which yeah. is I guess the next frontier is, is you know, not open banking, but open finance, right? If you say, yes. Are we there yet? Are we, are we in the open finance era or...? Are we in the open finance area? Uh, what do you guys think? I would say no, but we are starting to talk about it in the right ways and the right groups are starting to come up with proposals and plans. But, you know, 100 billion payments, an awful lot of account kind of information and other services there's so much that we can do even in our core space without getting overexcited about new territory so you can never get overexcited no. about <laughs> it's Sorry, just, wrong, it's wrong just, place to say that it's just not possible especially not in the 11 first office so yeah. that's, that's all good um right i'm going to move us on to our next story and um, that's also from Fenextra, and that is that softbank's vision fund is going to lay off 30 percent of its staff The Vision Fund, a venture capital arm of SoftBank, has launched a sweeping layoff process cutting at least 30% of its workforce globally, or approximately 150 of the 500 employees. The news comes nearly two months after SoftBank chief exec said the company would review the organisation's size and structure in order to do some cost cutting. This was due to a record 3.2 trillion Japanese yen, um, which is about 23.4 billion dollars US loss in the three months that ended in June. The majority of SoftBank's record loss ties to the Vision Fund, which has backed more than 470 startups globally in the past six years. However, despite the massive losses, the Japanese tech conglomerate is reportedly considering launching a third Vision Fund. Julia, is this surprising? Sign of the times? What's your take? I think, yeah, I think sign of the times. I think, interestingly, when I'm speaking to smaller startup businesses there is still money available so you know this is not we shouldn't we shouldn't take this as sign of the times and there's no money out there there's no investment there's no I I absolutely don't think that's the case from the conversations that I've been having I think I guess what we're starting to see and I think we've been seeing over the last few years is more of a focus on 
the business model and the route to profitability for these startups and particularly that kind of overvaluation phase that I think we have been through where businesses have been really highly valued for very little income but actually you know large customer numbers perhaps big marketing campaigns and I so I think this is kind of a steadying of of what would probably always was going to happen, which is starting to say, actually, those businesses need to start to deliver results. Um, and clearly not all of them are, are able to at the level of those initial valuations. So, yeah, I don't, think it's, it's, I don't think it's doom and gloom. There's no money out there for anybody. But I do think that particularly some of those more established businesses are starting to need to be able to prove that they can deliver against the revenue business model that they've, that they've signed up to. Yeah, absolutely. Nadia, where would you sit yourself on the doom and gloom scale <laughs> at the moment? I mean, I think they've gone through a learning experience, haven't they? They sort of they they hit it. It's almost like when you hit, when your first deal is a success, you think everything else is going to be. They hit it really well on the Alibaba thing, and it's like I'm going to replicate that success. The problem is, is how do you tell which company is going to do well? How how do you tell which one isn't going to do well? How do you, to your point, assess? You know, is this the right team? Do they have a great idea, but are they able to execute? More importantly, do they understand cash flow forecasting? Do they know how to manage their cash? And I always wonder how much of that actually went into and how much was it? No, we're going to bet on the idea. If you look at John Doerr, he had a different approach to it. He was all about execution as everything, and he chose the companies he was going to invest in based on the capabilities of the team. So I don't know whether he's kind of gone through a learning experience in SoftBank and to your point has realized he needs to sort of have that combination of a great idea and the right team, still invest in the vision fund, but adapt the way that he does that investment, adapt the way that that he chooses the companies and the teams that he's going to invest in. So I don't think it's doom and gloom. I think it's just the, the normal cycle of learning. Unfortunate, obviously, for the teams is having to lay off. But I, I, I would say, I, I think that he will still want to, 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 to do something good and, and to give those companies opportunities. Yeah, it's, just, it's a difficult one, isn't it? It's such a sort of cult of personality yeah, around this guy. Right. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, I suppose the pessimist part of my brain is sort of saying, well, if you've got a someone who is has a reputation for being, you know, a big driving force in a company and they've built out a team around them and then they've not done very well and, and they kind of cut the team. Part of me worries like, well, which parts of the team have they have they cut? Have they cut the people that are doing the analysis, are doing the crunching that kind of, as you say, tries to move beyond just the do I like the CEO and into something that's a bit more analytical. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely, it's. I mean, I'm sure there will be Netflix documentaries about <laughs> SoftBank before before too long. Um, Tom, what's what's your view? No, I mean I agree with you. I agree with these guys, right? Like, I mean, we're we're fundamentally entering a different economic cycle now, and a lot of the growth of SoftBank and others was, you know, there was an era of relatively easy money and interest rates were very low, and people wanted a return. And you know, we in fintech were the beneficiaries of that of that kind of relatively easy money era, and that 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 era has ended. I, I yeah, and so Julia, I yeah, I've actually startups are still raising right like I, I have friends who are still getting you know great money from kind of venture funds and things like that so i don't think it's a totally doomed story but it's yeah, just a dose of realism which maybe is overdue yeah i'd be interested obviously you know the the chat is that they're going to be launching this this third fund so i suppose as you say now it'll be interesting to see how how still that gets a lot of dry powder out there. Yeah. yeah how yeah. that gets deployed would exactly. you would you guys be sinking money into that if, if they come knocking on on your door or or passing the buck 
sadly, I think my two pounds fifty is probably uh, not going to be much interest. <laughs> I think we're in a similar place. Yeah. So, yes. By the time I've signed all the paperwork at the bank to do it, I'm not sure it would be worth it. <laughs> no, but I mean, what, what is interesting, I think, for us all is the competitive environment is shifting slightly, and we're certainly seeing companies come to us now, and you know, they're, they're asking a lot more questions about our balance sheets and things like that. And I say, well, <laughs> go look up Visa on companies' houses. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> but you know, that, that is becoming a real concern, and it should be a real concern for, for people. You know, if you're choosing a long-term partner and you're investing a lot of money in a partnership, you know, I think you know, it's going to be a difficult time for some people. Uh, yeah, it was so. interesting. We were um, chatting on a new show you know, about a couple of months ago now about you know, a, a soft bank move into, into LATAM. Mm. Uh, and one of the kind of guests who was like an expert in that region was explaining that actually you know, lots of funds that are, or VC funds that are more local to the market, you feel very disgruntled because they've invested the time building those relationships with with the players in the ecosystem. They're building that understanding of of the balance sheet, of the product that they're trying mm. to launch, of the customers that they believe that product will serve. And then SoftBank sort of swoops in and, and yeah. disrupts the whole, the whole space. So, yeah, I guess maybe the hope might be that we start to see some of these VCs that are investing in individual regions you having a bit more space to, to kind of make sensible deals and yeah. sensible choices. I mean, in, in all of history, the best companies are actually founded in the most difficult times. You know, was, if this is a deep recession, then we can expect some pretty exciting stuff to emerge from it. And at the end of the day, good companies who solve customer problems and have good products will survive and will do well. So, Any any particular spaces you've got your eye on? Uh, for Tink to, to enter? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> no, I think we're, we're, we are very happy with the size of the challenge that we've set ourselves. Um, so, no, we're staying in payments and uh, lending and banking and, and all things around that for sure. Absolutely. Um, you know, Julie, I think we were chatting on an insight show not long ago about potentially the opportunity of financial crisis, as you say, to be like a, a driver for positive change in the industry. I suppose since we had that conversation, what's what's your take on it? Do you see the financial crisis that we're in as a driver for positive change potentially? Yeah, I do. I think as we've talked about the adoption of technology to help, whether it's you know helping people, frankly, who are struggling to repay debt and actually helping them with you know income and expenditure through open banking, you know all of these things are out there. I think what we saw with COVID is that a lot of companies adopted those more heavily and started to make them kind of mainstream offerings. Um, I think that will continue. I think you know, it, it will continue at a faster pace than it would have done actually without the kind of current situation, which is always positive. Um, but I think beyond that, you know, even as we develop the proposition with Mumsnet, a lot of those themes around cost of living and, you know, people's sort of concern around the future, you have to factor that into how you build the proposition and how you come up with the ideas, you know, the tools that will be useful and relevant, the educational advice that's kind of useful to tack on to things. So whether that's actually just being really frank about benefits that are available, pointing them towards charities that support with grants for people that are struggling actually to to keep up with their repayments. I think there's tons of things out there. And I do I do think businesses start to become more creative when we're in situations like this. Um, because there's just a bigger audience to serve, I guess, that are starting to to struggle and, and suffer with these issues. Absolutely. Um Nadia, I suppose what's CHSBC? philosophies as we go into this cost of living crisis what, what, what's your guys take on it I think the same thing as putting the customer at the heart of it and really understanding how we can help them through the process and and really tune into what are the particular characteristics of this cost of living because none of them are the same when you go into the recessions and it's not going to be a one size fits all with this 
a lot of what we're seeing is the trade space. So we're very active in the trade space. We're one of the world's biggest trade banks. And it's really about helping the, helping businesses through, through that trade process, demystifying it for them, helping them with any FX, the movement of money across borders, and, and you know, really kind of attuning into to what's going on. Because if you look at a lot of the goods that people source, they're coming from uh, India, from China, currency-restricted markets. So it's about how do you help them understand how you move goods, how you move money, um, and using that through digital journeys so that you make it easier for them. I mean, if you've ever bought anything from India or you try to get money out, there's a lot of paperwork that you have to do. So we've been doing a lot of work on how we digitize it because we've seen this huge increase in, in trade between the UK and that. So what we're seeing is companies are really thinking outside of the box in terms of what they want to do. And because we're very focused on sort of that international sector, it's, it's, uh, it's understanding what are the challenges they face as they go into those markets and helping them through it. You know, Tom mentioned Sweden. It, it's really adapting to each country, but then bringing it back to if you've got a customer in the UK and, and bridging, bridging that gap with the way that you solve the problem for them. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and yeah, you guys have, have got such fantastic scale that hopefully you know, you're, you're really well placed to solve some of those, those big problems. Um, I'm going to have to move us on because, again, more news that we need, to, we need to cover. So in this section that we're now calling Big Click Energy, we're just going to highlight some of the other global stories of the week that we couldn't quite fit into the main show, but still deserve a shout out. Starting with this one from AltFi. Serena Williams' venture capital firm leads Ugandan fintech Namida's pre-Series A funding round. Numida is a lending firm trying to help small business owners prosper across the African continent by providing working capital loans to African SMEs. Across Africa, SMEs account for 90% of the private sector and provide 80% of jobs, making them a crucial cog in the economies of countries on the continent. Working capital is dispersed via mobile phones, with loan sizes ranging from $1,000 to $5,000. Interest rates are between 10% and 16%. Since its $2.3 million seed funding round concluded in April last year, Numida has issued $20 million in working capital to SMEs. Sizes in unsecured credit have risen from $250,000 per month to $2 million. With the pre-series funding round, Numida hopes to double its client base to $40,000 within the next 18 months. Launched in 2014, Serena Ventures has focused its investment efforts on underrepresented founders, with 53% of funding recipients going to women-led projects and 47 and 12% going to black and Latino founders. Really interesting to see this investment going into the Ugandan fintech scene from Serena's fund. She really is this sort of iconic figure. So to see her using that platform to try to redistribute venture capital more equitably is just awesome. And I'm really fascinated to see where the money goes. I think they've also just announced a, another investment today, actually. Um, and we know that kind of all around the world that you know, micro and small businesses right, frequently struggle to get efficient access to the credit that they really need to plug cash flow gaps and to help them grow. So if Numida has built a sort of mobile money centric model that can get funds into merchant accounts fast, then they'll definitely find a place in the market. I'll be massively interested to see if they can make those pan-African ambitions a reality. They talk in their materials about their proprietary underwriting model. So really, I think it'll be dependent on how that adapts in a region where data sources can fluctuate massively from market to market. But you know, I really do hope they can nail it because empowering and enabling SMEs will be fundamental to supporting the growth of Uganda sort of individually and the African continent more generally. So fingers crossed. 
And our next story, also from Altfi, is that Payhawk is launching business credit cards in the UK. Payhawk became Bulgaria's first unicorn earlier this year, and this makes it the only spend management solution to offer UK businesses a choice between smart visa, credit and debit cards. As we began serving more UK enterprises, we discovered that many businesses prefer credit over debit cards for cash flow reasons, Payhawk co-founder and CEO Haristo Borisov said. Until now, many were forced into a decision between smart debit cards or traditional credit card products that do not benefit from any enterprise tech and might face lower acceptance rates. The credit cards and spend policies can be customised based on employee level or department and controlled with daily or single transaction limits. Corporate credit cards and expense management is definitely an area that is only 1% finished, although I think I'm a bit biased on this one because I'm currently putting off submitting my latest batch of 11 first expenses, so definitely biased. Um, But I have heard firsthand from SME owners that I've interviewed how important credit cards can be as a tool for managing cash flow in these businesses. I think especially in those early stages of a business where you're not in a position to think about funding at a larger scale, but still need to spread the cost of significant outlays like equipment or travel, for example, over a longer period of time then credit cards become a key tool for for doing that. Um, Although we're also interestingly seeing the rise of sort of B2B buy now, pay later. So again, that's something else I'll be interested to see if if Payhawk um, move into. But yeah, I'm definitely interested to have a nose around in their permissions capabilities as well, as that's another key pain point we hear from businesses that kind of want to remove those single points of failure in their teams, but also want to retain control of, of what people can do and see. So I will definitely be stalking this as soon as we get it onto 11FS Pulse. Okay, let's move on to the final part of the show, the and finally segment, where we round up one of the slightly sillier or more lighthearted stories of the week. And for this week, we're going to be looking at the SEC charging Kim Kardashian for Instagram crypto promotion. Again, we took that from Finextra. So Kim Kardashian has been slapped with a $1.26 million charge by the Securities and Exchange Commission, or SEC, for touting a crypto asset security without disclosing the $250,000 payout she got for the promotion. Kardashian failed to disclose that she was paid to publish a post on her Instagram account about Emacs tokens, the crypto asset security being offered by Ethereum Max. Kardashian's post contained a link to the Ethereum Max website, which provided instructions for potential investors to purchase the tokens. SEC Chair Gary Gensler immediately took to Twitter, warning investors not to make investment decisions based solely on the recommendations of a celebrity or influencer. The action is likely to lead to further punishments for other celebrities and influencers who have cashed in on the crypto asset craze. Whoa, the SEC got stuck in there. That's quite a big fine. Um, is anyone anyone feeling aggrieved on Kim's, Kim's behalf? No, I actually think they should have whacked her with much bigger fine. Okay, if, <laughs> yeah, if, if yeah. you're running I'm, the SEC, I'm very much what, in what, the, what if, are we talking about? If I was in the SEC, I would have dinged her with at least 10 million. I, I think, <laughs> I, I think if you've, yeah, <laughs> I've thought a lot about it. I mean, I, you know, when if you put the customer at the heart of what you do, one of the things, one of our duties of care is really protecting them from you know, wrong investments, fraudsters, scam, and making decisions based on on the right reasons. And I, I just, I don't agree with this concept that someone's going to go because people can't filter what's being said, right? And particularly because she appeals to a certain age group. At that at that time, you're not necessarily thinking, you're thinking this person's endorsing it. Their business people must have looked into it for her to endorse it. Therefore, actually, it may be okay and I, I need to look at it. 
And there's so much more that goes into looking at what you need to do with crypto and really understanding what what you're getting into. So I, I don't think it was I don't I don't think it was the right product for her to endorse. I think she should stick to the skims underwear and 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 leave financial services to the people who know what they're talking about. Fair enough, Tom. <laughs> Tom, are you going to be following Kim oh. Kardashian's advice any day, any day soon? I had to look up who Kim Kardashian was. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, it's pretty hard to disagree with what Nadu said there. I'd, I'd love to be the kind of the contrarian voice and say, well, you know people are responsible individuals and they should do this stuff up but of course not right like people don't understand crypto crypto is confusing you know celebrities have an enormous responsibility especially with people of her reach i think you know it's it's yeah borderline immoral i think um there's a lot of there's there's a lot of good stuff in crypto i'm sure right like it's an industry that's still you know it's it's so much going on that it's it's hard to make sweeping conclusions but there's also a lot of bad stuff and this is yeah, this is a blow, I would say, to crypto generally, and they need to think pretty carefully about how they market their products and who they choose to do them. Because, yeah, I absolutely. Um, I mean, I suppose you know, are there any celebrities that you would take financial advice from, Julia? <laughs> I was thinking about this question. I don't. I don't think. I don't think any of us in this room would take advice from celebrities, but we have to, as Tom said, recognise that the vast majority of the population will. And I think particularly in crypto, because, you know, there is such a get rich quick message around it that people want to believe, of course, mm. that consumers are quite easily taken down a path of of investment. And we, you know, we know that that's clearly going to have bad, bad consequences for many of them. Um, because as Tom said, they don't understand what they're doing, frankly, right? And, and an endorsement from any celebrity that is not close to it and hasn't vetted it, to your point, Nadia, um, which I'm presuming she hasn't, we don't know for sure, but I'm presuming that wasn't the case, um, you know, is, is just frankly unhelpful. So yeah, I think it's, for me, it's about, it is about that morality of, of what products should they back you know and how do you how do you control that without it being freedom of speech change you know it's a challenge but but i think hefty fines go some way to putting a lot of celebrities off actually so i would be with you i would go higher than than what they've done and i think it's a great start at least they're trying to to kind of really enforce that uh, that's i think frankly the only way that you actually try and really create any change in this space I think I would do whatever David Attenborough told me to do. Right? <laughs> I, think, I think a lot of people would. Yeah. I agree yeah, with that. Absolutely. And it, it's interesting Precisely you use because him. he doesn't tell you to invest in crypto. <laughs> yeah, but it's interesting you use him as an example because I was thinking about that endorsement piece and I was thinking, you know, it is true, right? We use celebrities to help endorse great change like David Attenborough basically is the reason we don't have plastic straws right like, <laughs> like there's, there are people out there that have have really moved things on and that can be really powerful when it's used for good, but equally we have to just be really careful, don't we, when it's when it's used for bad. Absolutely. Well, um, yeah, David Attenborough, please feel free to reach out to me directly if you do have advice on how <laughs> I should be spending my money. But sadly, I don't think that happened. Um, that wraps up this week's news show. Thank you so much to today's guests. Where can people find out a bit more about you, Nadia? LinkedIn. Absolutely. Tom? Oh, you want to find out about me, go on, go on tink.com and find out about Tink. <laughs> Okay, date, Julia? Yeah, so chatwood.co um, or my handle is Julia McCall on Twitter or on LinkedIn. Absolutely. And as for me, uh, you can find me on Twitter at kh.moody or on LinkedIn, Kate Moody. Massive thank you to you guys, the listeners, for listening. You can join the conversation on social media or email podcasts at 11fs.com. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Goodbye.